give uh, Jonathan one minute to come up and assemble himself. <laughs> then I'll ring so I can time. I never like to have this job. I always feel so bad about it. You need two hands to put it on. No. 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 Plenty of time to meet. Yeah, and tonight uh, Wes is going to do science comedy, which he does in his other life. He is a stand-up. He is. So don't miss it. Okay. All right. I don't, so wait, wait, wait. We don't know if we're two seconds before this time. Yeah, the time is ticking on. Yeah. What, you, what have you got on your clock? I'm, I've got two. I'm going to go for two minutes. Two minutes? No. I, I'm ready to start. Go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Off to a laugh. Um, I'd like to talk about three things. First, I'd like to talk about my research on mind wandering. And what I've been studying with mind wandering is the meta-awareness of mind-wandering, that moment where you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I've been mind-wandering, an experience that I expect many of you have become familiar with during this week. We've looked at meta-awareness of mind-wandering in two ways. One, we have individuals uh, press a button every time they notice themselves mind-wandering. Clearly, if you just press a button, you must know you're mind-wandering. Secondly, we probe people into, uh, and we ask them, just now, were you mind-wandering? And the question is, can we catch people mind-wandering when they haven't caught themselves? And the answer is, we regularly do. <laughs> the second way in which we uh, look at meta-awareness is the way that Cliff mentioned yesterday. We just asked them, after we probed them, did you know that your mind was wandering? And what we find is very consistent and systematic differences between mind-wandering with versus without meta-awareness. When people realize that they're mind-wandering, it's less detrimental in general than when they don't. And we also find all sorts of interesting different physiological differences, differences in uh, fMRI and so on. Uh, I also want to just briefly make a plug that mind-wandering isn't always bad. We also find that mind-wandering, people who mind-wander a lot but notice their mind-wander also tend to be more creative. So something to think about. The second thing I'd like to talk about is research that we've been doing on anomalous cognition, or better known as parapsychology. This is really a taboo topic in mainstream science, but uh, we've, uh, my experience, I've now done a lot of studies in this area, and I've come to two conclusions. I believe that there is something there, and I think that it's a bit wonky, excuse the technical expression there, uh, that it seems to be susceptible to uh, experimental effects, various things that we're still working on. I have several grants that I'm working on, a number of brave graduate students and postdocs who are working on this as well. And I think it's really uh, important to recognize that the very same people who brought you uh, mindfulness and all the meditation also believe that the mind transcends time and space in important ways and that science should not ignore that. The third thing I'd like to mention is two different sort of ideas that I had uh, during this uh, sitting. Uh, two populations that I think might really, really benefit from uh, meditation. One is uh, the elderly. Uh, they have one of the big problems with we don't have enough time, but as we get older, that's a time. So I really think there should be retirement communities, assisted living situations, specifically dedicated to uh, uh, such uh, practices. If they exist, we should be in there researching them, and there should be more of them. And I hope that they'll be there when I'm ready. The second, uh, the second is uh, correctional facilities. 
What you have these pe people in prisons with so much time on their hand, what better thing to do than to have them learning meditation? This could give them an opportunity to become more mindful, perhaps develop emotional regulation. And imagine the exciting results of finding that individuals who in prison have been given meditation treatment show reduced recidivism. Three seconds to spare. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, my name's Jonathan Stewart, and I'm a professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm uh, Stu Eisengrath. I'm a professor of psychiatry at UCSF uh, nearby here in San Francisco. And what I'm uh, going to report on is our research on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression. As many of you know, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression was originally developed by Zindel Siegel, Mark Williams, and John Teasdale as a relapse prevention program for people who had fully recovered from uh, depression. And uh, they thought that people who were depressed would have difficulty uh, learning mindfulness <coughs> and uh, may, uh, may not be able to utilize it as a technique. However, uh, several factors went into uh, various groups exploring the use of this as a tool for uh, treating active depression. There have now been uh, four reports uh, around the world, two in England, one in Australia, and our group uh, uh, here in San Francisco reporting its usefulness in treating people with active depression. And uh, our findings are, uh, have actually been focused on treating people with treatment-resistant depression. And uh, we believe that this is a very important population because uh, uh, Treatment-resistant depression is defined in the literature as people who have failed to fully recover despite two or more antidepressant trials. And if you look at the uh, evidence from studies such as the recent uh, sequence treatment alternatives to relieve depression, which is the largest NIMH trial ever uh, completed, it found that 50% of people who have two full 12-week trials of medication do not recover completely. So this is a massive public health problem. As many of you know, depression is the number one cause of disability in North America, beating out things like cancer and coronary artery disease in terms of disability days. So we believe there was a serious problem. And secondly, we believe that our group believe that treatment-resistant depression uh, engaged in much of the autonomous negative thinking that might lend itself perfectly to an application such as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So our group has done uh, a fairly large pilot study that found that uh, individuals reduced their uh, uh, depression levels 45% uh, 
after an eight-week course of MBCT. And interestingly, they decreased uh, rumination, and they also decreased experiential avoidance and had increased acceptance, which relates to the mindfulness, uh, which, we, which they also had increased rates of. We used a particular measure, and as Cliff mentioned yesterday, that, that the, what measure to use for mindfulness is sort of rapidly changing from time to time. But the measure we use showed that these people, even people with uh, significant depression levels, were able to learn the technique. And in fact, the biggest change in depression levels occurred in the people who were most depressed. Uh, so uh, we're quite excited by these findings and uh, have been fortunate enough to uh, apply to NIH and NCAM and have received a uh, full R01 grant uh, to do a randomized control trial that will be starting uh, sometime this spring. That's it for three minutes. That was Stuart Eisendrath. I will sit for three minutes now.
This is Lisa Lindemann. Uh, so I'm a dissertator in Richie's lab at UW. Uh, I've also worked with Art Glenberg, um, who uh, studies embodied cognition. So my research is focused on the relationship between our uh, embodied cognition and emotion, specifically the role of conceptual metaphor in shaping emotional responses to events. Uh, so to the extent that meditation involves uh, recognizing and either disidentifying with or calming thoughts and emotions, research in embodied cognition is potentially very relevant and useful. Uh, so there's several different views of embodiment, uh, different definitions. And one of the primary views is uh, that's supported by research is that concepts, even abstract concepts, involve the simulation or reenactment of uh, bodily sensory motor experiences like lifting objects or walking on a path or climbing up a hill. And uh, according to George Lakoff at Berkeley and uh, Galese, the sensory motor simulations that compose abstract concepts are often metaphorical. So for example, they suggest that the concept of grasping an idea involves a simulation of grasping a physical object. Uh, and this simulation facilitates our understanding of what it means to grasp an idea. And this probably goes with the idea of clinging as well. Um, so the hypothesis that I've been investigating is that many emotions or what we would label an emotion or a feeling, that these emotions are in fact simulations of bodily experiences such as having a heavy weight on your shoulders or smothering, being physically injured or moving forward effortlessly, where these bodily experiences that you're simulating are metaphors for your situation. And it's just your way of understanding what the situation means to you. Uh, so I completed an experiment last year that suggests that uh, being burdened by work or social pressures or responsibilities actually feels physically heavy. Uh, other research has shown that moral indignation involves a simulation of oral disgust. Uh, social exclusion involves a simulation of being injured or cold. Uh, and the question that I'm specifically asking in my dissertation is why is something like moral disgust, for instance, um, why is it physically disgusting? So why does immorality, for instance, evoke oral revulsion? And so my dissertation is aimed at determining whether um, moral disgust as a case in point uh, is the result of some sort of evolutionary pre-adaptation where through your genes they just paired you know, perceptions of immorality with um, oral revulsion just sort of arbitrarily or whether it can result from conceptual learning or the development of conceptual metaphors. Um, so I discuss a metaphor simulation model of emotion in a paper published in the Journal of Cognitive Psychotherapy last year. The title of the uh, article is The Mental Simulation of Physical Incapacity in Depression. And that's by Lindemann and Abramson, 2008. Um, and uh, with respect to how all of this relates to meditation, I don't think I have enough time for that. But it's something that if anyone wants to talk to me about, I've been incorporating my research into my meditation practice for about 15 years. So um, if anyone wants to talk to me later about uh, that, I'd be happy to. So again, it's Lisa Lindemann, and I'm a student in Richie's lab at UW. Thank you very much. And we'll stick to three minutes.
Okay, where's Ryan here? <laughs> it's all right, Liz. This is not your time. We're not counting. No, no, I mean, it's your time. We're not using up your time. <laughs> now take an extra minute. I said such a startling thing to you. <laughs> take a breath. I'm not starting. <laughs> yes. We're being recorded. We will put that. We no, no. We will get. We will get it to you tomorrow, by tomorrow, and uh, and you'll all the day take your notebook with you because you'll find people and you'll want to put them on your list as well. So there's plenty of time. There, are 15 or 18 people or something, but we'll put them all on a list. Okay, go. Okay. Um. Well, there are two parts to my research, and one is I'm um, working in the studies of religious department, particularly on um, Tibetan Buddhist texts. And the other one, since I uh, I was a biochemist for for a time, <laughs> for some time, so I would like to um, somehow justify my um, hypothesis somehow. So uh, there's a lot for me to learn from all of you. Um, please give me suggestions after. You, if you're interested. So, uh, well, basically I'm comparing the mechanism to antidotes in Theravada and Mahayana um, Buddhist traditions of analytical meditation. And as we know that, well, these schools have one thing in common is that they all consist of calm, abiding, and special insight. And so far, what we have been doing mostly in sitting meditation is we're practicing more on calm abiding and with the teaching of teachers here, we learn how to cultivate our special insight. However, there are different definitions to special insight in different schools, and and um, they will have different effects on people psychologically, and that is my hypothesis, because um, I have been experimenting this on myself, and that's how I realize. And um, the, there are four different, um, so I use a Tibetan uh, text of four tenets on differentiating the self uh, the objects of observation. Okay, so there are four different ways. There are the core selflessness of person, self-subtle selflessness of person, and core selflessness of phenomena, subtle selflessness of phenomena. So in the Theravada school, uh, focuses primarily on selflessness of person, but uh, they don't have um, selflessness of phenomena. So that makes a difference in terms of the way people <coughs> analyzing or cultivate their special insight. And um, I will briefly go into the definition for each. So for core selflessness, a person means a person's emptiness of being a self that's permanent, unitary, and independent, which means it's not dependent on mental or physical aggregates. And for subtle selflessness, a person, uh, one should realize that a person's emptiness being substantially existent in the sense of being self-sufficient. Okay, so so these two are belonging to Theravada schools of uh, observation. And for core selflessness, a phenomenon is primarily used by the mind-only school, which is a time meditation. 
So for Theravada uh, school of meditation, it's primarily vipassana meditation. So for Chan meditation, um, in the mind-only school, one should realize a phenomena like being a different substantial entity from the consciousness perceiving them. They also lack being established by way of their own character as basis for designations of verbal conventions. And for subtle selfless is a phenomenon uh, which is posited by Prasangaka Madhyamaka school, which is more of a Galupa school in Tibetan Buddhist traditions. So uh, they posit that phenomena are merely posited by name and thoughts. Phenomena have utterly no mode of substan substance which comes from their own side. So there consists no, no exist existence in their own right. So why does this matter? Because um, in the Tibetan school of um, med analytical meditation, sitting is not their primary way of meditating. They rely heavily on debate, and um, which uh, I think also says why they're so happy all the time, because they <laughs> use a lot of syllogisms, and that is actually one of the, my main research, my, mo my main focus on research, which they use a text of Pramanavartika, uh, based on the Naga and Dharma Kirti. And they have a, a, a very um, lengthy, a very, uh, not lengthy, but um, substantial amount of work done based on these different interpretations. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'll just read you my conclusion because the debate part is very interesting because it talks about identifications of objects and negations and objects of, of engagement and in the form of debate and logic. So that's what I'm, I'm interested. So I read my conclusion. So I said that the con concept of antidote in traditional sense usually refer to another agent that asserts counteractive effect to the mechanism of, of opposition, suppression, or inhibition to object of rectification. As it is seen in the mechanism of antidote used by Theravada practitioner to counteract obstructions of affliction uh, with its opposition, for example, Four Noble Truths, it is quite common to find scriptural sources referred to observing objects such as Four Immeasurable Minds to the antidote that counteracts afflictive emotion than that which emphasizes on selflessness of person and phenomenon as antidote. As opposed to Mahayana tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, where study of logic and pramana, valid cognition is emphasized in training conceptual consciousness into direct perception through understanding of emptiness. Selflessness of person or phenomenon can only be observed by valid cognizer through inference or direct perception of emptiness. Hence, when positing selflessness of person and phenomenon being the object of observation as direct antidote of abandoning obstruction at path of seeing and path of meditation, the object possession being possessor being valid cognizer is the indirectly positive. Through taking emptiness of object of observation at path of meditation, consciousness is able to transform into exalted wisdom, becoming antidote for all sentient beings. Thank you. We'll sit for three minutes.
I was originally going to describe three, but since this three research studies, but since they're only tangentially related to meditation, I've cut it down to two. Uh, one, one is an experimental series of experimental studies of chronic schizophrenics with matched normal controls, reported in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General, with follow-ups in, in, in the Journal of Cognitive Neuropsychiatry. Uh, the results of this study strongly suggest the possibility that the conscious perceptions of some schizophrenics, i.e. the internal movie screen, if you can call it that, they act on, show not as a continuous movie, but as a series of freeze-frame shots separated by mini-gaps of about 300 milliseconds. This raises the possibility of different aspects and dimensions of consciousness worth considering, the smoothness, the smoothness of the flow. The second series are more, more social-psychological, using a fairly complex statistically modeling procedure on a generally representative longitudinal sample conducted over 30 years of the American population, we were able to demonstrate reciprocal causal effects between the intellectual complexity of job demands and intellectual functioning, thereby answering yes, to both hypotheses about why this may be so. Smart people are more likely to get complex jobs, and having a complex job is more likely to make you smarter. <laughs> uh, this finding is reported in Merton uh, Sociological Review and also the Psychology of Aging. It's important for the psychology of aging because these findings are equally true for younger and older younger and older individuals. We've also kind of replicated the same kind of findings, except instead of using intellectual functioning as our psychological variable, we've used self-directed orientations to self and others. This is basically, can be conceived of individualism. And people who have more, more complex jobs tend to have more self-directed orientations uh, than people who have less complex jobs. The biological implications of the finding are, are that, at a minimum, generally they're generally congruent with the evidence of neural generation and degeneration as a result of environmental changes. And this is neural degeneration and generation uh, Quite at the core of quite at the core of intellectual, quite at the core of psychological functioning, being intellectual functioning. The psychological implications are that changes in environmental conditions can affect important psychological conditions, often thought to be primarily biological, based in, and they can do this in meaningfully and important ways. Your environment can really affect you. The sociological implications are a little less cheerful. Basically, they are that those who have get. If you start out intelligent or if you start out in a reasonably good social, uh, social structural position, the nature of the reciprocal effect would mean that if you start out intelligent, you'll actually become more intelligent. If you caught out less intelligent, your nature would become somewhat less intelligent. Uh, the reverse is true, of course. Uh, 
the, the, the reverse is true. People in lower, lower situations are going to be worse. And another, another, impl another implication is that the, the, these effects are, are, are per not permanent, but people change. The, the, the psychology and sociology of the situation makes it such that people, people, can, people can change. These findings have been replicated uh, uh, in several different ways. Most recently, by the strictest, most knowledgeable uh, sociologist in the area has independently replicated the findings. We've replicated the findings in um, in Poland, we've replicated them in the Ukraine, and most recently, we have managed to replicate them in Japan. In Japan, we can actually fit the data from a parallel Japanese study to exactly the same model with exactly the same parameters that we have and still get statistically fitting models. So this is not just an American, this is just not an American phenomenon. It's a phenomenon which exists at least in all of the industrialized or post-industrialized world. Thank you. That was Carmi Skula. Carmi Skula. I was at the National Institute of Health. I'm now at the University of Maryland. <laughs> Is Peter McCauley here? Oh, there's Peter, right, okay. Do you want to do yours now? You already? We can do one more. We'll sit for one minute and we'll hear one more. My name's Peter McCauley. Uh, I'm not with an institution. I live in Hong Kong. I've been there for 30 years. Um, my I'd like to really talk about three things, if I have time. I'd like to make a plea for memetics, the study of memes. Uh, I'd like to talk, if I have time, about a study I did uh, on the prediction of happiness, looking at motivational factors. Uh, that was when I was a PhD student at the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong. And subsequently, uh, I've been teaching the MBSR program for seven years, and I have been doing follow-up studies there, all in Hong Kong. Um, memetics first. Uh, it's a story which my scientific life has informed my Buddhist practice, and my Buddhist practice has informed my scientific life. Uh, I have no institution. Uh, my only support really is my Buddhist practice. Um, in 96, I wrote a book, manuscript, about the evolution of the human mind. Uh, I called it a manuscript because it 
uh, isn't published. Uh, the final conclusion of that was, uh, I think I successfully summarised three billion years of evolution in 100 pages. Uh, and the bottom line was, uh, my conclusion at the time, that the human mind is a hybrid, like a hybrid vehicle. Um, it uh, contains, of course, the old genetic evolutionary uh, components, but also a new form of evolution or replication, which is the evolution of ideas. Um, and the two are having to coexist uh, in parallel. This turns out to be a field which uh, is uh, budding in the UK in particular called memetics. Uh, I was quite surprised when I was at IMS last year at this conference uh, that uh, quite a few people had not heard of this. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting area for mind and brain research. Essentially, um, genetics is uh, about the transmission of biological information through time and space. And what we see, the manifestation of that, is the bodies of successive species. Mimetics uh, is the evolution of uh, the transmission of cultural information. The unit of transmission is a meme. Uh, and the manifestation of that are the cultural artefacts that we see in the world, uh, craft, civilization, architecture, um, art, etc. Um, memes are not biological. Uh, they are probably at the level of quantum physics. That's why I'm very reassured here that uh, the Institute of Mind Body is now looking at the level of two photons. I've said to my family, um, it's analogous perhaps to um, Pasteur, who discovered the bacteria about 100 years ago. Uh, if someone had told him at the time that there was another organism that had no body, that existed only in the cells or the nucleuses of other living organisms, and that parasitized uh, the DNA to replicate, he would have said, Pasteur, the discoverer of bacteria, forget it. Um, but in fact, uh, that's a virus. And I think that within the next 30 years, we will discover memetics or memes to be the basis of um, the difference of human beings from other animals. What I'd like to do now, thank you very much. <coughs> we have... Uh, now a space for walking meditation and for yoga. It is the only yoga class today, so uh, I, I'm hopeful that just the right number of people will want to walk and just the right number of people will want to go and do yoga.